to another episode of Just Jerry Live, Plotting Perspectives in Church Life with Todd Bryant. And Jeff Short. What's going on, man? Well, uh, not a lot, I guess. Uh, things are pretty quiet. I hear they're supposed to be in early spring, so I'm definitely looking forward to that. Happy 25th anniversary. Quite an accomplishment these days. Yeah, that is true, and uh, this happens to be the the very day right now. So, yeah, I won't hold, I won't hold you long. I, I'm sure that you have major plans uh, for this evening, so uh, I won't hold you long today. <laughs> That's kind of you. <laughs> I almost said welcome to another episode of Just Jerry Live book reviews by Todd Bryan and Jeff Short. We are looking to do something just a little bit different over the next few episodes. Um, We've never done anything quite like this before. We're actually just going to read a book together and sort of give some thoughts as we read. And this is, this is one of those times that I probably should say we have, we have actually not discussed what we've read in the book we're going to do before this. So this may come out really crazy. (laughs) And maybe just to clarify, we're not going to read the book on air. Uh, We've actually uh, agreed to read a section of it ahead of time. And the podcast here is just going to be our discussion of it. Yeah, that's probably good. You said that several people probably had already turned it off though by that point. Maybe, maybe their friends will tell them that that's what's going on. We, you know, you and I obviously read quite widely. Uh, we've we've not been shy about saying that we read everything from fiction to biographies to theology. You know, we we read things we we agree with, and we read things that we do not agree with. Uh, there's a benefit in that, and it's that last section that we're going to deal with here, a book that, at least going in, neither one of us agree with. And we're going to read it, hopefully, to sharpen our own skills. And, And also, I think there are some other benefits just in showing people how you can read a book that you don't agree with and get some major benefits out of it. What, you got any thoughts about that? Well, it is beneficial um, to read books uh, from other perspectives. We tend sometimes to isolate and maybe insulate ourselves against hearing any other opinions. But really, that's that's just not not healthy for our own understanding. So I, th- I think it is good to you know listen. Uh, sometimes people seem to take the attitude of you know I don't need to listen to what you've got to say to know I disagree with you. That certainly is a, not a very good way of loving your neighbor um, as yourself. <laughs> I, I think we do make a lot of assumptions as to what other people believe, and because of that, we just we don't think we need to read them. and And I think that this is that's just another reason that something like this is beneficial. Right. All right, so what are we going to be talking about? That's the, that's the question. I'm sure everybody's sitting on the edge of their seat. Let me let me say this up front. You and I are very similar in our approach to scripture and and most of our views on things are pretty close. That probably hurts your reputation. But most of our, <laughs> most of our views are very close on theological things uh, ranging from, you know, soteriology, the study of salvation, 
to eschatology, the study of in, in things, we are pretty similar in our approach to those things. It happened. Right. It just so happens that this particular book we are going to read is on eschatology, the doctrine of end things. Admittedly, we probably should say up front that we are both premillennial. We do expect Jesus to reign for a thousand years on this earth over not only the nation of Israel from David's throne, but we expect the kingdom to extend worldwide. Is that is that fair? That's correct. Okay. So we're going to read a book that says something differently than that. We're going to read a book together that is from the opposite perspective. We're going to read a book on amillennialism, which does, you know, those that would hold that position do not believe that Jesus is actually going to reign from David's throne. The idea would be that he's doing that now. Right. At least that's what I understand. That's, and that's one of the reasons that we're going to read this book. So the book that we are going to read is a book that has been, uh, you know, reviewed by some friends of ours who I should mention both of us have friends that we are friendly with that hold to amillennialism. They're different than us. We are not in any way angry with them. In fact, uh, I've got friends that I've preached that differ with me on eschatology and and a few other things. It's not the end all as far as that goes. And yet some of them have have recommended this book as a good primer to amillennialism. In, In fact, the name of the book is the power of his reign, and the subtitle is an easy introduction to amillennialism. It's written by Jonathan Ammon. So the book is advertised as a as an introduction to amillennialism. And from what I've read thus far, which I hope we're going to get through a couple three chapters today. Of course, I've I've already said more than I probably should. It is a pretty decent introduction so far. I, I've been it's been an easy read for me. I think he's a good writer. I, I haven't had any problem following what he's saying. Right. You you agree with that? Right. Yeah. So let's just also say that Jonathan Ammon, the writer of this book, <clears throat> is is not someone I have any knowledge of outside of just starting to read this book. So I don't know really anything of his background or history. Uh, and he's talking about some of those things um, in this book. Um, so I don't have any prior knowledge or information about him at all, other than just, you know, starting to read this book. I have no idea what he believes on any subject right now. I, d- I don't know if he's, to, just to make it simple, I don't know if he's Armenian or Calvinistic. I don't know what, you know, I don't know. I have right. I have no idea. I, I, this is just a book that has been highly recommended as a good primer uh, a good introduction to Amil, and so here we are reading it. So, so we we've both read the introduction to chapter three, and I'm sure if you're like me, you're on a Kindle device and you're highlighting things that catch your eye, positive, negative, whatever. And we're just going to try to run through the from the introduction to chapter three. I, I should say these are very short chapters. This is obviously not meant to be an in-depth look at this subject. He's, right. Yeah, he, he has surely written this book for people who just want to be introduced to the subject. But that makes it easy for us to do a podcast, and so that's why we're doing it here. Right. All right, so he begins in the introduction by saying that 
he grew up in more of a pre-millennial, you know, background. That was the t- the teaching that he had. In fact, he he calls it dispensational premillennialism, which I'm sure that's what he would label me and you as being. We probably would have a little bit of pushback to that title. I, I don't necessarily like being called dispensational because I, I think there are some real quacks out there that, that are dispensational. But at the end of the day, everybody believes in dispensations or ages. Right. Uh, some people just believe in less than others do. And just from the table of contents, it appears that uh, Mr. Ammon believes in three dispensations or three ages, I should say, where you right. and I probably would see a few more ages being talked about in the scripture. Yeah, that does appear to be the case. All right. So one of the things that, that he brought up is the stress of a lot of believers over biblical prophecy in fact, he said he has become more and more frustrated with believers who were obsessed with the end times. And I, I would, you know, quickly remark that I've seen that from every camp. <laughs> I've seen amillennialists right. that are obsessed with correcting premillennialists, and I've seen certainly premillennialists that are obsessed with the Left Behind series, for instance, which, by the way, was would not in any way represent what you and I believe about the end times. Right. All that said, some two-thirds of the Bible at least was prophecy when it was written. And there still are major future events that we should be preaching about on a regular basis. I would think everybody, no matter their position, would agree with that. Well, the one of the things that I think he brings up and it, it is worthy of, of mention. And that is that when it comes to eschatology, there are various views. Um, and he mentions at one point, I don't remember if it's in the introduction or not, but he mentions at one point that even within amillennialism, there are various views about different aspects of future events. Uh, and that's certainly the case within premillennialism. Uh, it's, per, it's also the case within postmillennialism. Just, you know, any any end time view has has various uh, views within it. And so it's one of the reasons why I don't think that trying to use simplistic labels really is is ultimately helpful. Uh, You know, you mentioned dispensationalism and typically what we see as presented as dispensationalism uh, does have a number of problems with it. And we've seen. We've seen some efforts at trying to, I guess, maybe go between. Uh, we've seen uh, representations of, of what is called progressive dispensationalism. Uh, then we've seen sort of going the other way, progressive covenantalism and, and all these all these kind of things. So it, it is it can be a very complicated and thorny issue and it's one reason why I would like to just take this book as we're doing and just deal with, with what he actually says rather than just trying to label him as this or that, and then, you know, dismiss him, you know, let's just, let's just see what he has to say and, and then interact with that. Yeah, I agree. And and let me also say thus far, I've been really encouraged by his attitude. He has he has said, I am not bitter against those that disagree with me on end times. I do not believe they are deceived by Satan, you know, if they disagree with me on end times. Right. 
those are positive things. And I think we really need to do better at not looking down our nose at those that would disagree with us on these subjects. There are good brothers that have disagreed on eschatology for 2000 years. So absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Now, one of the points that he makes early in this book, and I've got friends that have made this point to me, is that amillennialism is simple. And he actually makes that point not only in the introduction, but in chapter one, which is which is titled Introducing Amillennialism. It's, he doesn't begin his scriptural defense really till later in the book. He's just introducing it. But he says several times that, you know, this book will be simple because amillennialism is simple. I'm going to be honest with you. I've I've, again, spoken with friends of mine who are all millennialists, and in theory, I suppose if you believe Jesus could return today and that's just the end and the eternal ages kick in, that explanation is simple. But explaining all these passages that seem to say something else is not simple. Yeah, I I agree with that. I mean, of course, he keeps saying uh, all millennialism is simple. And of course, he just you know he's re- he's repeating that quite a bit throughout the first part of this book, which is which is fine enough on the face of it. Although number one, where I don't know where from the Bible we get the idea that simplicity is what determines truth. Um, so that's I just I mean that's a fine statement as far as it goes. I just don't think it goes very far. Well, um, let's let's just but, take let's just take the atonement of Christ for instance. Right. That is a that is a deep subject and is difficult to there are there are verses here and there which seem to say different things and coming to a conclusion on that is important because what happened at the cross is the utmost importance of issues for us so just because something is simple doesn't mean it's correct and we shouldn't always look for the most simple uh, right yeah I, so but but I also agree with your statement that while sort of their the big statement of of amillennialism sounds simple enough but getting there is not simple um the process of of hermeneutics interpretation and what have you which which he's going to get into that you know that's that is not simple well, um, and, so, I, and we wouldn't be pressing this point i don't think except that he presses it you know he said he does seem to be pressing it he just keeps stating over and over how simple um that amillennialism is now as far as the the introduction goes number one and this has carried on so far as as you say we've read through chapter three and this has carried on for me i appreciate his attitude uh and, and i i believe he's writing honestly and i appreciate that and he obviously his goal is to he's just he's just talking about sort of what his journey was where he came from um i don't see it as being his his goal to you know attack and denounce everyone which i appreciate and so i'm i'm hoping that that's going to continue um through the book so he's he talks about how that he started out believing in a, a pre-tribulational rapture and a premillennial return of christ and uh that followed by a thousand year rain and so on so that's where that's where what his starting point was and so one of the things i noticed in the introduction as he's just sort of describing his journey is i would have to say out of 
my own experience, in other words, the people that I've actually known that have come to embrace amillennialism, their story is very similar to what he's presenting here. And I, I think it, I think it does highlight an important point when it comes to understanding eschatology, because what he's written in this introduction, how he got going is what I would call a basic recipe for becoming amillennial because he he's, ad, he's admittedly stating that he was confused by these various events and he started by studying these issues. And this is going to come out more as we get further into the book, but I don't believe that's the place to start. And typically that is the story of those I've known who were premillennial, though typically they were pre-mill by default. That was just what they were taught and all they'd ever really heard. And they started by studying the issues. They started by studying the systems of amillennialism versus premillennialism, you know, studying the problems, the questions. Um, and as they started trying to sort through those, those issues, they ultimately ended up, and I think he even talks about, you know, he, he goes post-trib for a while and then, you know, he ends up going on meal. And like I said, that's a very common story for the people that I've actually known that have gone from premillennialism to amillennialism. So really, I, I think from the start, I think he's being honest about how, you know, what his journey was, how he, you know, came to this. But again, I also think it's a basic recipe for how to become Amil. Um, and I don't really believe that it is the proper way to start to gain a better understanding of eschatology. I would agree. I, I think he, he seems to try to go and, and this is his explanation. Uh, you tell me if, if you read it differently. But he tries to figure out all of these little bitty small problems here and there. You know, this is wrong. This is wrong. Rather than taking a step back and let's look at the story of Scripture, what we would call biblical right. theology, the meta narrative from the beginning to the end. And then, you know, slowly dissecting as you go rather than starting with these few things that are problematic. Right. I do appreciate the fact, though, again, that he is willing to look at what he believes and try to figure out something differently. If if you still feel the exact same way about everything you've ever believed in your life, bar none, you probably aren't studying very hard and you aren't challenging. <laughs> right. I, now, I obviously disagree with, with where he ended up, but you know, finding a guy that's just willing to question himself is is encouraging. I'll say that. Absolutely. And and I would also say I think let you know let's let's return the honesty here with Jonathan Ammon and just say look every system of eschatology every system has problem passages, problem questions. I don't care what the system is, you know, any any time a a, a doctrine of eschatology when it's become systematized I mean, it, it has problem. It has problems. You know, it has things that are difficult. And that's that's just because, obviously, the nature of prophecy is difficult. And, let, you know, so let's let's just be honest about that, that prophecy is difficult. You know, sometimes we like to almost look down on the Pharisees for getting so many things wrong when, you know, Jesus was actually standing in front of them. But in their defense, they weren't the only ones getting these these prophecies wrong, um, and, and Christ was, you know, correcting even his own disciples. And a big part of the argument in the Book of Acts, especially in the preaching of the gospel to the Jews, 
is to show from the Old Testament prophets that the Christ, the Messiah, had to come and die. He had to, um, and to show that from the Old Testament prophecies. And, you know, that's why, you know, Paul would talk about, you know, I'm called in question here because of the resurrection. You know, that was a major contention. So, let you know, let's, I don't think we want to, you know, try to overcomplicate things, but still, I think we do need to admit that prophecy in general is a complicated subject. Well, I'll, I'll throw something out there and with a lot of premillennialists that I've, I've struggled with. I know it's a, it's a common belief by most premillennialists that there will be a temple, full serving temple during the millennium, doing the same sacrifices required under the Mosaic law. And, and that's, of course, based on the last part of Ezekiel. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, I've preached through Hebrews. You've preached through Hebrews. You can agree or disagree with me here. I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but... I struggle to see how there is any future for the temple. Christ has has fulfilled all of that. Now that that is a problem for some premillennialists. I don't think understanding though that the temple sacrifices have been fulfilled is any reason to throw premillennialism out the door. That's right. a, that's a huge step. But you know that is that is a problem that all millennialists bring up, and I and I'll say it's a it's a good point to bring up and something that should be discussed. Because Hebrews does seem extremely clear that those Jews that the writer of Hebrews is writing to should not go back to temple worship because nothing is there. Right. So it doesn't. No, I, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so it, let's let's just admit our own problems, you know, up front, and hopefully, you know, folks that would disagree with us will see that we we're at least willing to talk about you know some of these these things. So in chapter one, he does introduce amillennialism, and this is how he defines amillennialism. By the way, it looks like this is highlighted a lot according to Amazon. Christ is reigning now, and he will use his church to spread his reign throughout the earth until his return. Now, obviously, that takes a close quote there, by the way. Obviously, that takes the the reign that we see as future and places it now. And so at the end of that reign, we all agree is, is when final judgment happens and the eternal ages, you know, kicks in. The difference right. is we believe that that reign is future and that the judgment is afterwards. They believe that the reign is now and the judgment, since it's afterwards, will end and, and happen when Jesus returns. Is is that how you see his definition playing out? I do, and I and I think it's pretty consistent. In fact, sometimes I've heard amillennialists um, say that they don't really like the term amillennial um, because ah obviously being the the negative meaning no millennium. They don't really like that term because they you know they will object saying that they don't believe that there's no millennial reign of Christ, but that that millennial reign of Christ is now. Right. Um, so, you know, sometimes that's sort of a, a quibble uh, among amillennialists. So I think mean, that's a pretty, that's a pretty classic definition and explanation. And he says it again later on, on, on uh, you know, it, in, a, in a paragraph, it says on page five on my Kindle, about 13% through the book, but he says, this is the message of amillennialism that Christ's reign is right now. So he, he continues right. to stress that, you know, the reign is not future. 
It is reigning. All, all millennialists agree that Christ is reigning on earth today through his church. So I, I think right. he stressed that point enough that we can be confident we aren't misinterpreting that. And and it raises some questions, which obviously I, th- I think we'll... You know, we'll let him have his say because I think he's going to address these things later in the book. This this chapter is just to introduce amillennialism. But if you look back just prior to the quotes you're giving, he talks about uh, we can look forward to the kingdom of God growing even as deception grows in the world. God allows his kingdom to grow like wheat in a field full of weeds. So when he talks about this growing and spreading of the kingdom and speaks about, you know, God using the church, which I assume he means that in a, in a universal sense that all Christians over the earth are being used to build and spread the kingdom of God. Obviously, the, that all of those statements are based on a particular interpretation of the kingdom parables that Christ gave in the Gospels. So uh, again, it, it, through this introduction, I, I made note of a number of questions that are raised. And so, you know, I don't think we want, I don't know, you know, that we really want to delve into that a whole lot right now, um, because I think he's going to answer those later. So we'll, you know, we'll let him speak. But he, it seems like he's just making statements. And for the most part, he is. He's not really trying to defend anything. He's just trying to to set out, you know, what the basics of amillennialism is. But I certainly would, I would think that all amillennialists would agree that they do believe you know, Christ has been exalted to that throne of David right now, that he is reigning in his in his kingdom right now, and that, you know, we, the kingdom is is growing and, and spreading, and, and somehow we as Christians on the earth, you know, have part in, in bringing that in, and that all of that will, you know, ultimately culminate, culminate in, his, um, in his return that will, you know, give way to the eternal ages. I'm glad you brought that up because when I read that, I immediately thought of Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 2, where Daniel speaks of God himself establishing the kingdom. You know, it doesn't doesn't appear from anything Daniel has to say that, that God is looking for help in establishing that kingdom. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. And it right. and it's a very quick thing that happens. It's it's right. not as it's not as though it happens over a progression of time. It happens immediately, and everybody knows that it has happened. To me, you know. Right. Uh, now, you know, we may both be all millennialists in a few weeks. I don't know. I don't. <laughs> I don't expect that. But nonetheless, that's how I think I would view Daniel chapter two at this point. Well, and that's also consistent with Isaiah's prophecy when when he makes plain that. The kingdom is going to come by the strength of God's arm alone. Uh, in other words, you know, Israel is is to the point of being, you know, this bereft and and desolate widow, basically showing the picture to be beyond hope. Um, just like the description that you had of the line of David, you know, Jesse is has become a a, a charred stump in the ground. And somehow, you know, this this shoot comes forth, you know, that is the branch, the the Messiah. Um, so, I, yeah, I think that's that's entirely consistent. One thing I was surprised about in the second paragraph of this first chapter, and this this would fall under the differences between all millennialists, but he he said a couple of things that surprised me. 
He says, what Satan sought to do through the kingdoms of the world from the first century until now through rulers like Nero, Stalin, and Hitler and others will finally be accomplished in one last antichrist. The nations of the world will war against the church. And again, I'm I'm assuming he's just just using that to encompass all believers. But he seems to believe that there is a future for this world before Jesus returns and that there will be one last antichrist. Now, he may explain that, you know, as we work through this book, that I read that differently than what it seems to say there. But that was interesting to me because most amillennialists I know aren't necessarily looking for any future. They're expecting Jesus to return at any moment, and they aren't looking for a final antichrist. And I think that is a difference within, you know, some amillennialists. And that Actually, that paragraph also uh, raised another question, uh, and that is how that Satan is going to be deceiving the nations when, according to amillennialism, Satan is currently bound and prohibited from deceiving the nations. But I'm assuming, again, that he's going to to speak to that, you know, in the latter part of the book. Yeah, I highlighted it and just put a question mark. I can't imagine he won't touch on something that further explains that as we move you know, through his, and by the way, third paragraph from the end, again, in chapter one, first sentence, amillennialism is simple. And that's something that he continues to stress. I would argue that it is not simple. You know, when, right. you, when you read a seemingly clear declaration that he will reign for a thousand years on earth with his saints, and you read the term thousand years several times, that to say something other than that is not simple. It takes quite a bit of you know explanation. Now, we would both agree Revelation 20 is the last place to start discussing the kingdom. I'm just using that as an example of how it's not simple. Right. Yeah, though. Uh, anything else in chapter one stick out to you? No, I don't think so. And, and I would say anybody that's interested in, in reading, this is very, I mean, it, chapter one is only about five pages long. Um, right. Not difficult. All right, that's probably just a little bit more than we actually had anticipated talking about today. We'll just conclude there with chapter one, even though I had said we were going to go through chapter three. And I hope everybody has a good day. This is Just Jerry Live signing off.